Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 34, A Brick in the Wall. Last time, during the Lvov Conference, organized by Isaac Zuckerman, it was decided to send the 25-year-old Zevia Lubetkin to Warsaw to help the Zionists there, who were dealing with the ever-increasing pressure and harassment being metered out by the Nazis. Even though Zevia was as scared as anyone else by the thought of returning to the Nazi hive in Poland, she simply nodded her head and readied her things. Truth was, Zevia Lubetkin didn't talk a lot, period. During meetings, when with friends, or even with family, at times the introvertedness went unnoticed, especially if Isaac Zuckerman was in the same room. Lubetkin's mirror opposite, he could hardly refrain from giving his two cents worth, even when not asked, especially when not asked. Zuckerman was known to stand on tables declaring this or proclaiming that. But to the young lady, this hullabaloo was unproductive and ended with little being done. So no one was surprised when she took her orders and simply prepared to leave. She was certainly needed. The Nazis, though not yet given to an all-out assault on their Jewish-occupied subjects, had found another, more indirect way to make those people's lives hell. On March 22, 1940, as Good Friday was being observed, the procession winding its way through the streets of Warsaw, other supposed Protestants had decided on another way to mark the crucifixion of Christ. As Jewish residents were in and along Bankers Square on their side of the unofficial line that separated their territory from the Gentile space, Gangs of troublemakers crossed this normally respected line at Cordial's Avenue and began to harass the unsuspecting people. Stores were looted, Jewish shopkeepers were chased down the street, windows were smashed, all the while the ruffians yelling that it was the Jews that had killed Christ. In response, the victims did the only thing they could. Stores were closed and windows were quickly boarded up to hopefully reduce the damage being done. Certainly, the blue police, comprised of Poles, but in the control of the Nazis, were not about to lift a finger to suppress the troublemakers. Actually, they did a few times, when the assaulter became the assaulted, the Jew being taken away for the crime of defending himself. But there was one more thing the victims did. Bundesmark Edelman, whose life would be closely tied to Isaac Zuckerman's in the next few years, was sent to inform Bernard Goldstein, who himself rarely went outside due to his pre-war occupation of leading clashes against fascist groups like the ONR or the Sword and Plowman, usually successfully, of what was happening. Goldstein was a quiet, humorous man when he was allowed to be. But when trouble was made for the Jews before the war, he and his followers, huge burly men who worked with their hands and backs, made trouble for the fascists. Anti-Jewish demonstrations were broken up, literally, along with bones and skulls. Anti-Jewish headquarters were bombed or burned to the ground, with their leaders inside. Goldstein had seen the inside of many a jail cell, 
but having escaped from a Siberian prison camp, the man now hid himself and only emerged when needed. And now he was needed. The Monday following Good Friday, the harassment squads were back, picking up where they left off, this time swinging clubs or large sticks, screaming, Kill the Jews! But taking their assault one step further, they started bursting into people's homes. But Goldstein, a veteran of dozens of street brawls, didn't panic. Instead, he gathered intelligence. Edelman was sent out to see where the provocateurs were coming from, and what he brought back to his boss allowed Goldstein to plan his next move. Turns out, the Luftwaffe was gathering young, unemployed, and mostly uneducated Poles and paying them a few zealots to hop aboard German army buses to be transferred to the edge of the Jewish section to spread chaos and to revenge themselves against the Jews who, they were told, had started the worldwide economic depression that affected them all. So now that Goldstein knew he was fighting, not the Germans blowing off steam, but his former enemies, or the sons of his enemies, he gathered his men and made further plans. First, he told his men, who wouldn't think of disobeying him, that only non-lethal weapons were to be used. Any extreme reaction on their part could bring in the German army, or the launch of an even more oppressive program against all the Jews. There were to be no intentional deaths. Beyond that, the men were given leave to give as good as they got. The next day, when the angry mob appeared at the demarcation line, they found waiting for them a silent, angry Jewish mob. A battle ensued almost immediately. The clash came right before curfew. So Goldstein and his men charged into the fray, hoping to break it up before they themselves broke curfew. Soon wounded men were lying all about. The Jewish injured were gathered up and taken away by their colleagues least they end up in jail. Many Christians helped hide and succor the wounded Jewish combatants. As the curfew came, Goldstein's men broke off in good order. The hoodlums were in no mood to give chase. But under the Germans' prodding, the battle commenced again the next morning. The fighting raged all over the Jewish quarter. There were fewer attackers this time, but even more Jewish defenders. Goldstein's men won the day, but the struggle was renewed each morning as the Nazis brought in fresh reinforcements. Only as the Jewish porters, water carriers, and coalmen won several battles in a row did the blue police step in and end the violence. No more buses showed up as of March 29th. As if Sima Rothauser didn't have enough reason to hate the Nazis, what with his family's three-story home being bombed, most of it landing on top of him, with a large piece of wood piercing his neck, and he barely surviving, only because of the courage of a stranger that carried him to a medic clinic, who the man was, Simha didn't know. His hatred and desire to fight back was complete when his father, Zvi, lost his shop to a German national. The store with its decreased but steady business, at least kept his family from the worst of the occupation and rationing. One day, as V was sitting behind his counter, a Volksdeutsch opened the door and approached the proprietor, 
The man was an ethnic German who lived outside of the Third Reich, but as a citizen of the Reich, was more equal than the conquered. The man was a Trauhunter, a member of the main economic trustee office, East, set up by the Reich Marshal himself, Hermann Goering. The trustee office's sole objective was to confiscate Polish property that would benefit the rich and reward those loyal to the Nazi party. The transaction between the two men was thus. The Trauhunter demanded the keys, and Zvi Rothauser simply handed them over. Zvi's general store was one of 112,000 small businesses so consumed. Others included 9,120 large companies, over 75,000 small artisan shops, 9,000 mid-sized factories, and just over 200 large industrial concerns. Not that the older Rothauser had much of a choice. Still, his son Sima resented his father's resignation of the takeover, but more still resented their new German masters. Something had to be done. On the morning of the first day of April 1940, workers showed up along the edge of the Jewish quarter, but they, unlike the bully boys, were not carrying weapons. Instead, they had the proper tools of construction workers, and they got straight to work. Soon, the beginnings of long trenches cutting into the ground appeared and began to lengthen along the entire edge of the Jewish quarter. Then, posters were attached to the mounds of growing dirt, warning that this area was threatened by typhus. When the Jewish leaders protested slash questioned German officials about the work, they were told that the wall was going up along the trenches to protect the Jews from the attacking Poles. The recent raging battle that Goldstein's men had won was given as an example. Of course, the Christian Poles were told another story. The walls were going up, the Germans explained, concern on their faces, to protect those outside of the quarter from typhus, as the number of Jews having contracted the disease was growing. This may have, in part, been caused by the German ration allowances placed on the Visovians. Under the guidelines, Christian Poles were giving 669 daily calories, only 184 for each Jew, while the Nazi officials and the Volkdeutsch were allocated 2,613 calories each day. Which is why, when Zionist Zavia Lubetkin made it to Warsaw, she focused her attention not on underground newspapers that spoke the truth, the people could see for themselves the truth, but instead on feeding the young Zionists to keep up their strength. If there was to be a resistance, these people needed to be strong. Because, in short, Poland's food, like its rubber, coal, and other raw materials, were being sent to Germany for the master race and its war machine. Simultaneously, Lubetkin went to work on her group's other deficiencies. Unlike the Bundist or the politically right-leaning Zionists, the Zion left, that she was in charge of, did not have a paramilitary force or anything of the kind. It had been the Bundists of Goldstein and members of the Zion right that had bashed the enthusiasm out of the German-paid Polish youths. But she was not the one to organize or lead fighters. What she brought was moral strength and a quiet conviction 
The young men around here needed stirring words, a young general, someone who could lead by example. In short, she and those with her needed Isaac Zuckerman. So, off went a message to Zuckerman to join her. When he got the summons, Isaac asked himself the same question she did when she found out she was being sent west. Am I willing to do this? Do I have the courage to do this? Once Isaac arrived, he had plenty of stories to tell Lubetkin about his journey, but taking over the conversation before the young, bombastic man could launch into his speech, Zevia told him the only reason he had made it into the Jewish quarter was because of the system she and others had set up to smuggle people in and out. This seemed to take the wind out of the young man's sails, who just settled for telling her of the boundary between the two occupied zones. The Germans had ran off the people and torched the houses of all those on their side of no man's land. It seems that the trust between the Nazis and communists was freezing into its own small cold war. But before the team of Zevia and Isaac could really get things going, their mission seemed about to come to an end. A few months after Isaac's arrival, Germany launched its attack upon the West. Now the might of the Allies were engaged against Warsaw's oppressors. Sadly, the Germans seemed to be doing to the French and British what they had done to Poland, the defense of Warsaw notwithstanding. The two young Zionists put their heads together. There had to be a way to help the Allies in the West, but nothing too noticeable, nothing that would bring the wrath of the general government down on the heads of the Zionists and Bundists. The initial idea was to sabotage the fuel transport trains coming from Stalin's Russia to Hitler's Germany, a major part of their non-aggression pact, as it crossed through Germany's side of Poland. But that was the very kind of thing that could spell death for all. Stealth and deniability were needed. This led to the idea, no one knows who exactly came up with it, of sabotaging the lubricating oil used for the gearboxes of the trains. The shipments would break down, and the arrogant Nazis would assume that the inferiorly designed trains of Poland and Russia were to blame. The plan was put into effect, and only after a few hundred trains were put out of commission did the Germans finally catch on. In typical Nazi fashion, several dozens of Polish and Jewish citizens were executed, but not the right ones. And even though the general government was swinging wildly its sword of death and revenge, this violence had to be answered. The underground was becoming more organized by the day, thanks in part to the work of Zevia and Isaac. They soon established courts and execution squads. Their job was to try and, if found guilty, eliminate those Poles who had turned informant for the Nazis. But knowing this would only lead to the elevation of danger towards them, the underground also decided it had nothing to lose in going after the Volkdeutsch, like the one that had commandeered Sima's father's general store. But death would not be their lot. To kill Germans would bring a storm of murder that would not only harm many innocent Jews, but also disrupt the underground that was just beginning to gel 
and grow. So a nonviolent solution was arranged. Having intercepted and obtained the ability to forge letters of the German nationals who grabbed up Polish and Jewish properties and businesses, the underground soon sent out supposed letters from these very individuals, which were mailed to the Wehrmacht recruiting officers. A typical letter went, I cannot continue any longer to stand by while German brothers are heroically dying. I wish to contribute my services to the glorious German army and herewith solicit the privilege of immediate induction into the Wehrmacht. Understandably, the German army, now engaged with the Allies proper in the West, could not afford to look a gift horse in the mouth. The Wehrmacht keenly responded to these letters. Only in time did the Germans realize they were being played. Hans Frank, the governor, decided this arrogant defiance had to be met with extreme action. But ever needing to satisfy the endless need for slave or prison workers in munition factories back in Germany, his reaction to the forged letters and deaths of loyal German civilians was to grab up, eventually, hundreds of thousands of Poles and ship them west. Yet, as Jews were not allowed within the Reich, only Polish Christians were abducted and thrown aboard trains waiting to leave Warsaw. It soon came to the point where the very armbands declaring a person to be Jewish was the only thing that saved them from the nightmarish abductions and relocations. To a certain degree, Christians started carrying around on their persons papers that identified them as Jewish. Again, the Germans were grabbing the wrong people. But raising the stakes even higher, Hans Frank had the Gestapo turned loose. The dreaded men in black, thinking in terms of dealing with German Jews before the war, focused on the intellectuals of the Christian Poles. Professionals, doctors, lawyers, journalists were gathered up. Within weeks, tens of thousands had been collected and taken to Peacock Prison, just next to the Jewish quarter. The prison encompassed an entire block. As before, even the Gestapo were grabbing the wrong people. Of those detained, almost 40% of them were shot while in prison or taken to a field just north of the capital and then eliminated. Still, the number of prisoners was overwhelming. It was decided to open a new camp to house these unfortunate souls until they too could be dealt with as all political prisoners would be. After scouting around, the general government decided on an old military base that would be the beginning of their new camp. It was 200 miles south of Warsaw, hard upon a small town of some 12,000 inhabitants. The camp took the name of the town, Oswissim, or after it was Germanized, Auschwitz. Greetings, everyone. Um, the following is a recording of one of the men who worked with Zivia Lubetkin um, in her time in the Warsaw Ghetto. So I'll play a little bit of that for you. Um, just to let you know, my totally random um, coffee mug winner is David S. from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So, David, I'll be contacting you, and you can let me know if you want a Churchill or an FDR mug. So here's that recording. It really is interesting. It gives you an idea of truly how much these people had to struggle with so little in resisting the Germans. 
that belonged to a group. As I said, the head guy was Picker, handsome-looking, six feet, two inches tall, handsome-looking blonde guy. He organized. From him, I bought a gun. He went around to the rich Jews to get the money to buy ammunition. Because, you see, the PPS, which means the, the, the Polish the Socialist Party, was supposed to give us weapons as soon as we hang up the red flag on the tallest building of the ghetto. But they didn't show up through the canals. So actually we were fighting with nothing. We killed a couple of Germans during the first or second day. Then on the, they started 19th and then I don't remember exactly the day. But it was probably 25th, 26th of April 1943. Hormuzko showed up. Imagine. How did he manage to come in? I don't know. He told me that he went to the soldiers through the help of the Polish underground and Polish army at that time, underground army. He came. And he told me he's taking me out. And I didn't want to go. We talked to all my friends and all told me that I'll be better alive than dead. I gave them my pistol, which I still have the same one. A couple of rounds of ammunition and another, I believe, two bottles of malt of cocoa piles, which I prepared and so on. I did not give them my sign -up. Yes, I have. for a bit. In this particular uh, group, there was uh, the commandant of our big group by the name of Shimon Heller. Uh, one of the messenger boys was running on the streets and was shot. So Shimon ran after him to pick him off the street and he was killed on the spot. We heard those explosions, you know, from... Uh tank explosions that we exploded tanks they killed Germans but the Germans weren't stupid they sent a lot of Ukrainians so I used of course the hand grenade to blow up four of them Ukrainians they walked into an empty store and I threw the gun in. we were running from post to post while the Germans were shooting down on the street we could see them what was it like to see Jews fighting Germans I don't think that it was a question at that point of Jews fighting Germans. It was us not going without resistance. I found myself facing fire and fire. The Germans surrounded the ghetto and slowly, systematically, they were burning building by building. They, they brought in flamethrowers and they were burning building one after another. There was no place to hide because if, even if you had a bunker, the building would be burned and the remnants of the building would fall on the, on the cellar and you would be buried alive. So in, in a situation like this, the Germans got me and they put me in a convoy. I don't know why they didn't kill us, 
but they were many men in the convoy that were part of the resistance. 